And the stars are melting into the loneliest of lakes And in the morning you'll find that you were already awake everybody welcome to the very first episode of last refuge of the incompetent i am gall and i'm joined by my two lovely co-hosts i'm moses and i'm ted now we oh, can great. talk over each other it was beautiful. see that's why you do it twice i mean this is the first time <laughs> this is our inaugural recording um uh, so what's the show about gall the show was an excellent question. So the show is a um, an eclectic mix of music and talking revolving around science fiction, or if you prefer the term, speculative fiction. Um, yeah. So we <laughs> each week we'll have a different theme, and the three of us will curate some some books and some movies and some TV shows to talk about, and and the wonderful. If you don't know the word, don't use it. <laughs> How dare you? It's magnanimous um, and a jerk. Thank you. There you go. Ted, Ted. Joel, Ted over there will be curating music as well. I mean, um, you can you can curate music too. I just happened to oh, do we, all we of it this week. <laughs> we will. Yeah. Um, Freeloaders. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah so that was good right am i good yeah let's keep going (laughs) yeah so this is our first week and we we've decided our theme is representations of a future now past so what does that mean kind of like how well does sci-fi predict the present or the present slash not too distant future um yeah that was my yeah, understanding. So what <laughs> we were thinking of our the, the book that we seem to be centered on is Parable of the Sower, since that was uh, written in the early nineties and set in uh, the early twenty twenties, right? Yeah, it's twenty twenty five. Twenty twenty five. Close enough. I mean it nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's yeah, there's a lot of sci fi out there that you know, there are hits and misses. There are future near future predictions that now seem laughably retro now and some that are just eerily precious yeah yeah and so i think that's what our show is kind of going to do this week is look at the look at the laughable and compare it to the precious (laughs) (laughs) oh we have Um, so many good titles now (laughs) yeah uh i did want to johnny mnemonic is a good mix of both i feel oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um uh, so I have a clip from Octavia Butler talking about, um, oh, the, the panel she's on is called Science Future Science Fiction. Um, and it's kind of just like her talking a little bit about sci-fi's ability to predict the future. Um, do you guys want me to play that? Or... Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That'd be good. Okay. 
Yes, Octavia. I think it's dangerous to assume that whatever we're, we've been doing, we're going to keep doing that. You know, the future is more of the same, more only more advanced. Um, during the um, um, frenzy about the new uh, millennium, I reread um, an old book. Um, I think was a, a collection by Harry Harrison called The Year 2000. Oh, and right. it was done back in 1970. And that means the stories were written in the 60s, thereabouts. And over and over again, you saw that what, they, what, what the, the writers were writing about was their own time, but just more of it, or harder, or higher, or whatever, you know, more of the same. Um, I think the one thing we can be sure of is that we won't have you know, straight line prophecy coming true, that whatever technological things we're doing now, we'll just do more of that and better. I think we'll get surprises. September 11th is certainly an example of that. So was the fall of the Soviet Union. I think we, it's, it's, it's dangerous to assume that, um, that we can actually see the future by only looking at the technological advancements we've made so far. So I think I just wanted to include that because a lot of times people talk about sci-fi predicting the future and just focus on technologies. And I think like one of the things that stands out about her writing is that she focuses about the future and like doesn't talk about technology that much mm -hmm. um, and can kind of see that in what she was trying to say. Yeah, technology is extremely marginal in Parable of the Sower. Um, yeah, it's in the background to the extent that it's referenced at all. Uh, there was one, one piece of uh, 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 of that book where you know she's the character she's talking about living in this walled-off community and not being able to afford the fancy technology. Like that is kind of the only way it comes in is that you know they have a TV but they don't have the advanced. Uh, uh, interactive uh, virtual reality suits that mm. all uh, that all the rich people right. have, right? Yeah. And they, I mean, it's almost like an anarcho-primitivist story, right? Like this return to nature that they've all forgotten. They're all living in the suburbs, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean the tech, the level of technology, the level of technology, and the level of like governance is very sort of uneven and confused which in a lot of ways in some ways is what's great about it because it reminds us that you know uh well it's sort of the the future is already here but it's unevenly distributed thing mm -hmm. but in the negative sense like um you know even if things are getting worse some things will be getting worse worse than others <laughs> and in different places at different rates um uh so yeah like they don't seem to have they you know they don't have new consumer goods but yeah he, the father seems to like work remotely at college i assume they have like america online on, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, running on like windows 3.1 um <laughs> we, we should say but, this was written what in 1993 right 1993 so was, yeah yeah oh sorry I mean, it might be helpful. I do have like a back cover synopsis, if that might make sense. Should I? Sure. Yeah. Okay. For anyone who hasn't read Parable of the Sower, <laughs> yeah. wondering why we're talking about it. Too bad. <laughs> we'll read it. 
This is this show is to educate you. It's a it's a book club where we give you no prep time. Yeah, it's just for us. Uh, thank you for that labor. Um. Okay, you guys ready? Yeah. All right. Parable of the Sower is the Butlerian odyssey of one woman who is twice as feeling in a world that has become doubly dehumanized. The time is 2025. The place is California, where small walled communities must protect themselves from hordes of desperate scavengers and roaming bands of people addicted to a drug that activates an orgasmic desire to burn, rape, and murder. When one small community is overrun, Lauren Olamina, an 18-year-old black woman with the hereditary train trait of hyper-empathy, which causes her to feel others' pain as her own, sets off on foot along the dangerous coastal highways moving north into the unknown. And um, for those of you that don't know who Octavia Butler is, I mean, she's kind of like a, a staple of, um, of the science fiction world. Um, she's actually uniquely Californian. And it's funny, the book tracks a, a Southern Californian making its way to the Northern, like, um, oasis that she thinks is going to be up there. And mm -hmm. Butler herself was born in Southern California and ended up moving to and living most much of her life in Seattle, Washington, which is um, kind of a, I mean, you write what you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Parable of the Sower is an extremely Californian book. Yeah. Like it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's sort of the, the nightmare of California with the, like the dream of California right. uh, placed within it. Uh, which sort of gets interestingly mapped onto Southern California and Northern California, respectively. Um, but yeah, al alongside that, you know, not not really having um, technology or not giving the reader a sense of, you know, the technological world of the novel, it's an interesting contrast to a lot of um, science fiction works that give you this um kind of god's eye overview of an entire society and how it works right. whereas in this work you're very much uh limited to the perspective of the characters which is this kind of cloistered suburban middle class but extremely proletarianized middle class right worldview uh and yeah I was reading, or I was, oh, go, sorry, did I interrupt you? No. no. <laughs> I, I watched a video interview of her where she was taught, somebody asked her what, like, what, um, what group are, are sci-fi writers ignoring? And she talked about, well, she said cast because she's a sci-fi writer, but <laughs> she, she, she said, she talked about how like class is what people are ignoring. And I feel like in some sense writing from someone's like only minute perspective is like a is an interesting way to to see how class affects a character in a society yeah i'd say it does a, a really good job of that um like when when covid started i started seeing lots of people or well some people talk about how they were reading Parable of the Sower and like, oh, it, it's all here. Wow, she <laughs> predicted everything. Uh, so actually reading it for the first time, which I did uh, this week, last week, whatever weeks what are. Um, I was surprised by how much of it didn't seem that 
connected to R are now. There are definitely some things that uh, are related to current developments, but much more than its prescience, what stood out to me was how early 90s it was. It's yeah. very, very much a product of like the urban crisis of the 80s and 90s, or, you know, the, if not the crisis itself, the way the supposed crisis took up people's, took up the popular imagination. Um, like the city in Parable of the Sower is just a complete nightmare and disaster, and it's basically presented as irredeemable. Um, yeah, which is right. I'm sure how many people felt during the 1992 LA riots. Right. Like uh, reading those accounts is very scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it struck me that this starts to change in the last half or maybe a third of the book. But if you took just the first half of the book and took out the fact that the characters were non-white you i feel like you could have given it to like a 19 given the book to a night like a 1990s white supremacist or militia type and they would have like been into it right because it kind of does present their view of like you know of what the city yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really push back against that vision much it's like there's not much subtle, there's not much like subtlety or nuance about it. It's like, yep, no, they're cannibals who are on drugs and just want to destroy everything. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it really presents the people who get addicted to this fire substance as irredeemable. Right, right. Did you notice but, that the, the cannibal folk didn't pop up until they got to like Central California on their journey? Uh, Did anybody notice that? I no, thought, I didn't remember that part. Or was it, or did I misread that? I my, my memory is that like even around their neighborhood, when they go into the hills, uh, it's right. like okay. you know wild dogs eating people and right. maybe cannibals. Okay. Um, oh, the maybe but, cannibal is always there, but she doesn't really see it until yeah. later. Mm. Okay. But I mean, but then the fact that the book is so. You know, the, the narrative is so limited to uh, the perspective of this walled suburban community. Uh, you do, you almost have to wonder if some of the presentation of how, you know, horrible everyone outside the walls is, is sort of an unreliable narrator thing, because <laughs> like the main sort of form of progress throughout the narrative is that when they actually get onto the road, they keep discovering these people who you know, aren't just out to kill, rob and kill you. Right. And, like, you can uh, interact with people you've never met before in a positive way. Um, I mean, I do get the impression that the main character, Lauren Olamina, you're not supposed to think she's, like, perfect, right? No. So, yeah. Um, Should we play some uh, music? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe what kind of maybe you want to talk about what music you chose for that like sparked from Parable of the Sower. Yeah. So my general approach for curating of the music for this episode is uh well we selected a few particular works that we'd be talking about. Uh Parable of the Sower is one, you'll find about 
the others later. Um, <laughs> so I looked for music that was either from the year that that um, that the work was published or released, or from the year the work was set in. Um, Parable of the Sower is set in 2025 and beyond. I don't have any pre-releases, <laughs> any leaked pre-releases in 2025. I'm working on it, but um, not yet. So I picked things that were from 1993. Um, a lot, I found like several hip hop tracks that kind of get to that, you know, urban unrest and mm -hmm. uh, collapse of civilization uh, vibe. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. And hey there, it's Gaul. Sorry for the weird interruption. Uh, if you're listening to the show and wondering why you can't hear the music that we talk about, that's because this show is recorded to be broadcast on the radio when there are different legality and licensing issues when it comes to radio versus podcasting. Um, but the music you are listening to is by the inimitable Focus Bird who gave us permission to use all of her music for this show. And if you are dying to hear the full show in all its recorded glory, you can hear us live at KCSB dot org or if you happen to be in santa barbara 91.9 fm and uh our show broadcasts on saturdays from 6 to 8 p.m pacific standard time it's also uh stored for two weeks after on radio free america this might be tangential but uh but the uh, um, did you guys know about Soul Seed? I was like, reading about her Earthseed books. Have you ever heard of Soul Seed at no, all? No, no idea. <laughs> they are like a religious group that was started to be Earthseed. So, <laughs> so in the book, for those of you that have never have not read Parable of the Sower, there is a the main character is starting her own religion. That's the simplest way to describe it, and. Um, it's called Earthseed, and there are people now in the real world calling themselves Soulseed. Soulseed is a contemporary movement in real life, not in a book, that adopts the religious beliefs Lauren Olamina presents in Parallel of the Sower. Their central tenet is that life is precious. Anyway, I thought I, I, thought I would mention that. Does that count as predicting the future if someone just decides to make your book come true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredibly successful, Butler. <laughs> Um, uh, Moses, you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ted. Uh, <laughs> no, not anymore. You, you were ahead. I lost it. I'll get back again. Okay. Moses, you sent that article, um, that was w w essentially about how she predicts the future, right? Is that yeah, it was, uh, some, some, uh, some advice on trying to predict the future and several it's what she said in the uh video clip you said you said few right. rules for predicting the future <laughs> that's not i live in this world too octavia butler and the state of realism 
That mm-hmm. is a long, more academic article, not by Butler. <laughs> I did, did not read that, by the way. <laughs> that one was pretty dense. I, I, I did read it. It kind of made me angry. Oh, um, no. Yeah, that one I, it's a, I it's sent it before I finished it. That's like an academic, right, that wrote it? That's a yeah. deal? Yeah, he teaches at OSU now. I don't know if he did in 2011. Mm. Um, yeah, one thing that one thing that uh, I thought about uh, recently, even though the show is only now coming <laughs> into existence, is uh-huh. uh, how angry it will make any grad student who actually studies science fiction if they happen to hear it. <laughs> They'll be like, I know, like I read all these texts, I know oh, all these theories. Show? These people are just talking about it, knowing nothing. <laughs> it's a, yeah, just that's the whole point. It's the radio. <laughs> it's radio slash podcasts. The whole I point mean, is. I have a lot of really strong feelings about it, about how annoying academia is. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my thoughts to those people are: I don't care. Well, I mean, my thought is: you get to make a show. Also, it's great. Anyone can make a yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a call out, imaginary grad student. <laughs> I mean, this is up. the annoying part about all this I mean, we should, for, for for the sake of transparency is I have a master's degree uh, Ted has too many degrees and <laughs> Moses has a few uh, as well yeah well yeah physics yeah yeah so. and l- listen up imaginary grad student <laughs> I have read Frederick Jameson's archaeologies of the future it was just a long time ago <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, there, I, I did highlight some stuff in that article that you sent, though, um, but the, uh, that um, in her words that she wrote, um, oh, not and, the grad and student. Butler's some rules yeah. on predicting the future. Yeah. Um, so, for, well, first of all, one of the one of the interesting things about in Earthseed about the Lauren character is that like her eventual goal is to populate the stars, right? Yeah. And I think like that if you listen to any interviews or read anything that butler wrote about herself like she's like obsessed with with um the idea of like one day we'll we'll go and populate the stars and i don't know when she wrote this article but she's Uh, like 2000 i think it says okay so she's like uh apollo 11 reached the moon in july 1969 i had already left home by then and i believed i was watching humanity leave home i assumed that we would go to Go on to establish lunar colonies and eventually send people to Mars. We probably will do those things someday, but I never imagined that it would take as long as it has. Moral wishful thinking is no no more help in predicting the future than fear, superstition, or depression. So, in my view, in my mm-hmm. pessimistic view, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to the stars. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, I yeah. I mean, outlook not so good as the eight ball says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Certainly not in the like immediate present, right. um, but yeah, I did. That did the insistence, Lauren's insistence that on going to the stars did um, stick out to me as well because sort of like her religion is basically the faith of science fiction itself, <laughs> um, and it does seem like it's it's Octavia Butler's own belief in that science fiction idea. Um, sort of in conflict with this very um, pessimistic outlook for the actual immediate future of California and the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I mean, because the rest of the Earthseed stuff, 
I don't, maybe I wasn't reading it right, but it's not like that much of a developed theology at all. Like the characters. Hey, break. She's a teenager. <laughs> I mean, yes, she's a teenager. But it, yeah, I mean, we should it, say that the main character is what seventeen when you when you first meet her. Yeah, so, yeah. But like the character, the other characters who we're told are reading it, like are impressed by yeah. it and like oh, start yeah. picking right. it up. Right, but these are the sacred texts now for mm-hmm. quotations. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, like it's like a little draft. bit of sort of. Uh, you know, Spinozan pantheism with a little bit of like Le Guin style Taoism, but it's sort yeah. of it's sketchy, which makes it even more like, which even more emphasizes that science fiction itself is basically the faith that um, she carries with her. Right. Um, I mean, it might just yeah. also be like the the ego of the writer herself, like of Octavia Butler. I mean, it's pretty. It's a uh, when I first started reading the book, I was like, I'm sorry, this book is about a character who's inventing a religion that we're all now supposed to think is really great. Like, that's, you're, you know, you're writing that religion. Right? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I like how how she, how uh, much of it is clearly her putting herself into the, the story. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's good. I like it. I mean, I like that it, you can, it helps me relate to it more. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 oh, go ahead, Dad. And ju- just giving us these snippets of the Earthseed, you know, ideology uh, in, from her diary is a much better idea than like, you know, Silmarillioning it and giving mm-hmm. us 400 pages of actual Earthseed. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, that probably wouldn't have worked out. I. It's funny. I I've read other Octavia Butler stuff, namely uh, Kindred and. Um, the whole exogenesis theory, uh, mm-hmm. series. I don't know if I'm saying that word correctly, but I don't Xenogenesis. Care. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> you added like an entire syllable. It's not there. It's a cool. It's, read, I think it's fine. read the gosh darn word, people. All right, fine. Xenogenesis. So um, I, this struck me as different. Like, like well, I guess all, all of those seem different. But um, like it felt more like very personal i mean they're all personal right but it felt very much like the idea of like a, an author creating a religion it seems like a very personal thing anyway i've never actually read any butler before now so i'll take your word for it oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> xenogenesis uh, is a great series no. it's weird wackadoo yeah i've uh, read the synopsis sounds oh. sounds weird sounds like i'd like it yeah you guys would like it um, I think that I also wanted to mention, um, Parable of the Talents, because uh, the, the, the Kindle version of the book that I read, like, <laughs> had, like, a chapter of Parable of the Talents, which is the second book in the series, right afterwards, um, and Parable of the Sower ends so ab- abruptly that at first I just thought I was reading a continuation of the book, mm. um, so I read a chapter of it and it's like, I feel like you kind of have to read both books together to like get the full sense mm. of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good thing. None of us did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is how we relate to whoever's listening. Now we talk yeah. about what we didn't read just like yeah. we didn't read it. 
<laughs> well, one thing I did read, and it's in the first chapter, so like the first chapter of Parable of the Talents, I think it, it's like her son is is the narrator in this story. I think daughter, but yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> from her brother. <laughs> um, and there's like a character in it, or the, the presidential candidate that's mm. running is is basically Reagan, but in the future. Mm. And it has he has the same help us to make America great again slogan. Um but it's it's interesting, like she predicted this like very charismatic, handsome fascist (laughs) (laughs) which which everybody says is like what we're getting next right like so i just thought i'd point that out good thing tom cotton's not a handsome (laughs) (laughs) pull it with that one yeah oh and she did in that essay that you sent she did say that like part of why she wrote parable the talents is because she wanted to explore how a country might slide into fascism Mm -hmm. so (laughs) Yeah, we should we should have listened. Oh yeah, go ahead. In in the Jeff Men piece that Moses sent, um, but only I read. uh, (laughs) I did finish it. I did read the rest. Okay. Yeah, he discusses Parable of the Talents, and it's I believe like the narrator is Lauren's daughter, who's putting together texts. Okay. Some written by Lauren, some by her brother Marcus, who shows back up again after being supposedly lost in the first one. Um, Wait, the her, not the brother, not Keith. No, Marcus, the oh, younger Marcus. brother. Okay, that's interesting. Um, this might be a good time to, to talk about um, Dream Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, just in, in comparison. Do you guys wanted to do that? Yeah, let's uh, let's have another music break that'll segue into that. <laughs> First, uh, well, like we were talking about the, yeah, we were talking ahead. about the president as the, like, oh, yeah. the presidency that's featured in Parable of the Sower as you know maybe something that it got it did uh, predict well, um, and the other like one of the main other sort of futurological things in Parable of the Sower is the fact. Like the main reason that everything is bad is that it's way too hot now. Yeah. Um, which it is in in some ways it's a good like climate change book, um, but you know within that eighties and nineties urban crisis right. milieu. Mm-hmm. But it also I should be more forgiving of this, but <laughs> like in the book it specifies that it doesn't rain in California. It rains like once every six or seven years. And that, and that's just too much. Like, <laughs> if, if the climate is that changed, like none of the other stuff matters. You're not going to go back to the land. Like the no. land, yeah, it's that's you true. basically live in the Atacama now, and none of the rest of the book makes sense. I, I was um, shocked when they do go up, and like the reservoir is still has water in it, and Clear Lake is still mm-hmm. a lake. That was a little bit like, wait, what? Like yeah. Oh, and that was the other thing. How do they not know what's happening? Do they they don't have internet anymore? Like they don't know what's happening in the rest of California. Like that yeah, was it, it, weird it, to me. Yeah, and yet they seem to do a lot of remote work from their 
computer yeah. they have with America Online. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Like a, a bunch of those services, like in this world, became totally privatized, and so if you can't afford internet, and you know, we're right. probably that into different things. Like the yeah, fire maybe. department is now private, so you, nobody calls the fire department because they can't pay the fees, that kind of thing. Well, you know what? This yeah. might be a good time to talk about Johnny Mnemonic instead. <laughs> <laughs> Great combo. Well, that was that was another interesting thing reading Parable of the Sower in the current like uh, you know with abolition of prisons and the police suddenly mm -hmm. um, becoming far more mainstream uh, than they have been even in the recent past is that while on the one hand it, you know it's the eighties and nineties urban crisis thing and uh, like crime is horrible and out of control. But um, which is sort of, you know, the the law and order um, crime bill view of the world. But in right. this book, the police are also terrible. Yeah, they there's no reason to trust yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you kind of get both uh, both visions of the world at once. Yeah, there's a surprisingly like pessimistic view of humanity that like everybody if faced in a crisis is going to become <laughs> horrible <laughs> like that, that, that i did one of the thing i did like about the book is the weird drug that makes you want to set fire <laughs> yeah mean, that's that's not one thing i liked more about the book but <laughs> I that yeah that was a good like just like pure sci-fi inventiveness it's not yeah it's not realistic necessarily, but it's also not anti-realistic. Um, yeah, it's just like a fun invention. Yeah, uh, like, and I, I guess also her hyper empathy syndrome, which was which was a, I didn't really. I mean, I understood it, but I also didn't. It just made her too special. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, I think Parable of the Sower has these both like pessimistic and optimistic visions and the whole book is sort of the interplay between the two of them but they're never like it's it's an ongoing contradiction before between the two and they're not really they're not resolved in the end which not it's not like they should be resolved that's um what makes the book interesting i think is the ongoing contradiction um, conflict between the two um but also it leads to some weird like this, sometimes they go together in a way that makes the book's world not really make that much sense. Right, um, right. And also I just, I wish she had just read a few more papers on early nineties climate science, <laughs> uh, just to get the rain levels right. That's all I'm asking, Octavia. I mean, this um, still comes off as a strong recommendation. If you haven't read the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is a good book. It's, it's a good book and it's a good book. Um, like I said in the beginning, it's fun to read sci-fi that's like not talking about predictions of the future solely based on the technologies of the future. So I think that's that's definitely a cool aspect of it. Morning says through canvas curtains Blue and yellow shades of rose Welcome back from my lovely musical break. <laughs> um, 
Um, I thought it might be good for us to compare Parable of the Sower to another classic. Um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was written in 1968. Um, And before we go talk about it, for those of you that have never read it, Um, if you've seen the movie Blade Runner it's based on that book and uh, here's a back cover synopsis right so it's written by Philip K. Dick it was written in 1968 and the story is by 2021 the world war has killed millions driving entire species into extinction and sending mankind off planet those who remain covet any living creature and for people who can't afford one companies built incredibly realistic simulacra horses, birds, cats, sheep They even built humans. Immigrants to Mars receive androids so sophisticated that they are indistinguishable from true men or women. Fearful of the havoc these artificial humans can wreak, the government bans them from Earth. Driven into hiding, unauthorized androids live among human beings undetected. Rick Deckard, an officially sanctioned bounty hunter, is commissioned to find rogue androids and retire them. But when cornered, androids fight back with lethal force. (laughs) (laughs) The, yeah. the the book is so much more like philosophical than that makes it sound. <laughs> and yeah, also, true. and then like the, the Blade Runner, the movie is totally different, a totally different text. Cause like yeah. in, the, in the, in the book, Deckard is a real like schlub. He's like, it's just a sad, sad guy. He's like, Oh, I just got to go retire these androids. That's true. Well, you mean he's a Philip K. Dick protagonist? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you mean he's Philip K. Dick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct. Oh. And for those of you who don't know who Philip K. Dick is, um, you should probably know who he is if you're listening to a sci-fi show. But um, yeah, he's a big guy. He's very important. Um, I didn't know this about him because I was like reading his um, story, like who he was. I mean, I know who he is, but I didn't know that he like died impoverished and with like, and nobody really read his stuff. Did you guys know that? No. Yeah. I mean, what, did he die in the I mean, 80s, 90s? Uh, he died like, in wait. 1982. Oh, well, it's earlier than I thought. And this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, but it's a, after years of drug abuse and mental illness, Dick died impoverished and with little literary reputation outside of science fiction circles. By the 21st century, however, he was widely regarded as a master of imaginative, paranoid fiction in the reign of Franz Kafka and Thomas Pynchon. Anyway. Uh, so when was, when was the last time you read the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric I read it um, in the last two years for the first time. Mm. Um, uh, I I'd seen Blade Runner. Yeah. I think I had also seen Blade Runner first. Uh, yeah, back in high school or whatever. But yeah, the book I found, you know, most of it is Deckard kind of wading through confusion. Uh, like he goes to a police uh, the uh, station and then he gets sent to another police station. And it's like, wait, is one of these real? Is one of these fake? Is one of these a hologram? Are these? Uh, and then there's this whole other thing about being able to dial up emotions because everyone feels so shitty. Yeah, and that was my favorite so part, terrible. actually. And you got to bleep that out. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, I I still love the book. Yeah, and uh, but in terms of like it forecasting uh, the future, right, it's forecasting it the same time period that Parable of Sower does, but from uh, further out from 1968. 
Yeah. And it was definitely the fashion in sci-fi to, you know, well, here's a huge cataclysmic event or here's all the space travel. Right. What are the consequences of that? And, uh, you know, we haven't gotten to that part yet, but who knows how many <laughs> cataclysms are right around the corner. Even That's more. That's true. Uh, but yeah, I, I sure, I feel like uh, in today, today's latest cataclysm, I'm reacting by uh, uh, retreating into confusion and, and, and depression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To make this a therapy podcast. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's like a good, I think that's like a, um, definitely a trope that exists within that sci-fi prediction of the future. This idea that like, just with more technology, we'll go deeper and deeper into this virtual world, right? And not actually address our ills. Yeah, we'll just keep, uh, the technology will just be more escapism. Right. Right. Uh, that's what this other book, the Stanislaw Lem book, the Futurological Congress, oh, yeah. is much funnier. Uh, <laughs> uh, hilarious book with a lot of psychedelic puns, like there's or pharmacological puns. Every other page, there's a medication that changes your mood and all this other stuff. Uh, similar thing. And in that book too, uh, which I think was written in the seventies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Polish, they, right? Yeah, he's a Polish author, but he knows English really well. And I don't know if the original Polish puns are the same because there's so many incredibly <laughs> English-specific puns. Uh, like Stanislav Lem was a master. I don't know if his translator is was also the master in this case. Must have been. <laughs> anyway, the, but the guy descends into further and further layers of hallucinations and realizes that reality, there are just more and more layers of reality that he's not seeing. Mm. Uh, and that the true reality is just so gut-wrenchingly horrible. People just walking around in rags. Uh, right yeah <laughs> but it's a funny book recommend that one too mm. ted do you have thoughts on blade runner the <laughs> film <laughs> yeah i haven't i believe i read do androids dream of electric sheep in high school which is like i read a lot of philip kiddick in high school and then mm -hmm. really never since yeah um so I'm not sure if I remember, I don't really remember it well enough to comment on it. It's from what you say, it sounds like a Philip K. Dick story. <laughs> um, like, all the themes are there. What um, about the, the movie though? I feel like that's something that you have more insight into. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, the whole phenomenon of post the whole postmortem phenomenon of Philip K. Dick as this author, author that Hollywood loves right. going back to over and over again to make like, action movies yeah. um, is pretty bizarre. Um, yeah, there's so it, many things that, have, that they've adapted post okay. his death. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the Nicolas Cage movie Next... The Ben Total Affleck recall. movie Paycheck, Total Recall, <laughs> Minority uh, Report, Minority, yeah, Scanner Darkly, Man in the High Castle, yeah. Uh, which I mean, it's sort of it makes sense in in one way in that Hollywood loves to you know filmmakers in general love to make like what is reality, what is simulacra. Mm -hmm. type films because that's their business. Yeah, that's um, what movies are. Is making fake realities <laughs> and 
I think Hollywood likes making movies more about more than Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, books are that too, but movies are that in a very different way. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, Ted, what, what music worlds did you look into for, for Blade Runner? Uh, so I picked out some for Duran Wood's Dream of Electric Sheep. Okay. Um, just stuff that's from 1968. Um, either like early electronic music, like Silver Apples or Terry Riley or Raymond Scott, mm -hmm. um, mm. with some just uh, sort of Dickian um, <laughs> psychedelic stuff, uh, like. The National Gallery's fear of becoming double. Um, <laughs> that's a very Dickian fear. Or uh, Captain Beefheart's On Tomorrow. Uh, so Wendy Carlos is switched on Bach. Um, oh yeah, that's a good, that's, that's a fun one. Of course, also went on to be in um, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for for Blade Runner, I went with music from 1982. Um, you know, Blade Runner has this, uh, it's set in this, you know, kind of, I mean, unlike Durandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep, Durandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep isn't really a, a cyberpunk um, work yeah, right. in any right. way. I mean, it's it was written far before right. the genre term was invented, but the film usually is considered part of that. Right. Um, and like stylistically, it's almost sort of like a, German expressionist neo noir type of deal, mm -hmm. um, but in setting, it's in this LA that's full of like um, you know Japanese stuff and big buildings. Right. Um, obviously, it's set in a future without zoning ordinances. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those have been eliminated entirely. Um, so for the music, I you know a lot of stuff that sounded futuristic then and a lot of um japanese music of the time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because the film is definitely uh, it's one of the first filmic examples i can think of that of a theme that like continued to be bigger and bigger throughout the 80s and 90s of like japanese takeover yeah um it's like uh, selling us so many consumer electronics right um you're gonna run Are the world Johnny yeah let's Monic. let's project this <laughs> linearly yeah um yeah. and there's probably even more a thing in hollywood because japanese like banks were buying a lot of real estate in downtown los angeles specifically mm. so it probably loomed larger um so yeah, I picked some Japanese music of the time, sort of like this is what they imagined the future would be like. <laughs> um if anybody's listening to this show and looking for recommendations, both those books are good books, just so we can <laughs> clear I that think, up. I mean you... I think every book we talk about is our <laughs> yeah, recommendation, unless book. explicitly <laughs> yeah. we'll say don't read it. Don't read this. I'll, I'll if... read it for for different purposes. Yeah. For example, watch the apple for very different <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> That one was kind of tough to get through. The apple. The sleepy look of your stare. Sleep. 
I guess I have one more thing to say about Blade Runner. Um, okay. Let's hear it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Blade Runner, I guess, doesn't, I guess this isn't necessarily the way it gets criticized, but people point out, like, the future LA that Blade Runner uh, portrays is not what 2019 looked like <laughs> at all. No. Um, and the, there's, I mean, the the cyberpunk representation of like grim technological mega cities. Um, yeah, comes up yeah, a lot. Pyramids and smokestacks. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, so. Go ahead, Ted. Sorry. And it, it seems to me that, like, interestingly, and like this, the mega, the cyberpunk megalopolis of Blade Runner is sort of international. Um, in that there's, you know, neon katakana everywhere <laughs> and stuff. Um, but I think the reason, like, the reason the future, this future doesn't look like our future is that they basically projected all of, they projected, you know, developments of the time into the future without really taking into account the actual, like, global spread of capital and industrial production that did happen. Mm -hmm. Like the Blade Blade Runner Los Angeles is 2019 Los Angeles. If basically like all the future had happened in the United States (laughs) 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 instead of like spreading out across the entire world. Right. So Mm -hmm. it has this like aesthetic internationalism or cosmo- global cosmopolitanism. Right. Um, but its future is also based on sort of not considering the rest of the world in like a serious material way. Sure. I mean, it's also written by Americans and yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, yeah. So uh, we're, 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 we're famous for, for our global uh, thinking. Yeah. I don't know that much about Ridley Scott. I don't believe he's a political economist. <laughs> <laughs> Could be wrong. Um, he's, in- he's English. Just like that. <laughs> yeah. Can I? Can I ask you? Oh God, the English love cyberpunk. Um, can I ask you about William Gibson? Because I feel like Ted, you are our resident Johnny Mnemonic um, expert. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've read for- probably like two thirds of his work. So yes, you can. <laughs> so so my it's funny my I I, I just realized when I watch because. Moses and I watched Johnny Mnemonic for the first time last night, yeah. and our minds were blown. At least <laughs> mine was, and um, I realized that like I don't my exposure to cyberpunk, uh, apart from like Philip K. Dick books that were then turned in, like they weren't written as cyberpunk, mm-hmm. right? The genre didn't really exist then, but the films were then adapted in the cyberpunk world. Ted's taking a shirt off in case anybody. Oh, I forgot that. <laughs> Really, do not have air conditioning. I think it's illegal to describe taking a shirt off. I think that might count as obscenity because it's too provocative. Um. (laughs) Anyway, my only like world of cyberpunk is through like graphic novels. I think Transmetropolitan was the first graphic Mm. novel that I was like really into when I was in college. Um, so I'm wondering, Ted, if you know anything about why, first of all, the British are so into it and like, just like maybe a little bit about the man, the myth, the legend, William Gibson. 
Well, William Gibson is Canadian, which oh, is oh, it's true. like being British if you're American. Uh, <laughs> well, I, and actually he was born in South Carolina oh, and damn. grew up in Virginia. So, uh, but he did his writing in Canada. Uh, he's actually a draft dodger. <laughs> yeah. He left to avoid the, the Vietnam War draft and never came back, uh, pretty much. Um, so, I don't know, other, other than Ridley Scott, what English people are obsessed with cyberpunk? Uh, are you thinking of the guy who did Transmetropolitan? He's British, right? Grant Morrison? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe my, my worldview is so, <laughs> it's because I only know one thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the British aren't obsessed with cyberpunk. You just read Transmetropolitan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's true. Oh, well. Take that back. Um... Well, they're all strong recommendations. <laughs> they are. That's true. Uh, yeah, you. I mean, you mentioned Philip K. Dick as somebody who got turned into cyberpunk, um, mm-hmm. but there definitely are elements of um, cyberpunk in Dick, or alien elements that ended up in cyberpunk. Like, uh, like cyberpunk protagonists are often like struggling, like hustlers who are sort of marginal mm. society, which is also a feature of the Philip K. Dick protagonist. Right. Um, and like Philip K. Dick stories, the characters are often like um, uh, sort of oppressed by consumer products. Mm. Um, and in most of the, you know, at least early cyberpunk stories, um, you know, everything is dictated by sort of the market and buying and selling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like everyone is always trying to like find the highest bidder for their services, um, so right. they can buy the next expensive implant that will allow them to continue competing in the absurdly niche um, market that they operate in. Um, like carrying uh, data in their head. Um, that's Keanu Reeves' role in John and Mnemonic as a data courier. Yeah. All data is insecure <laughs> unless it's stored deep inside somebody's cybernetic brain, aka Keanu. He can carry 200 gigabytes in his brain. He starts out with 80. He gets a doubler so he can go to 160, but then he gets overloaded <laughs> with 320. That's a major plot point. <laughs> it's it's uh, based on a short story, which can I just say... So William Gibson also wrote the the short story, and then he wrote the screenplay. But then, why did they get rid of the fact that the dolphin is addicted to heroin? That was in a very I really enjoyed that. Yeah. in the short story. I don't know why they took out the junkie dolphin. Yeah, I mean they kept the dolphin, but they took out the junkie of part. Dolphin is great. I don't know the heroin addicted dolphin might have uh, ruined the PG thirteen reading. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. That film had a PG-13 rating. I'm just going to assume it did. Oh, hold on. Not even I mean, somebody gets their fingers cut off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some gruesome shots in that movie. There is some gruesome shots. And do you, for those of you who watched the show Community, I recently rewatched it during quarantine and just realized as we were watching there's an episode in the last season of community where the dean gets stuck in that like a virtual reality headset and it's literally like the exact same 
it's 100% inspired by Johnny Mnemonic. That's good. <laughs> Ooh, the, there was a in that in that scene in the movie in Johnny Mnemonic when he's got to log on to the internet. Oh, also, I like how the movie starts out with internet 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's the setting of the first scene. But anyway, yeah. lo- he's logging on to the cyber world, and of course, they're yeah they're engaging with it through gloves and yeah. and uh, manipulating blocks by grabbing <laughs> the air. Yeah. Which user interface we could make. We had the technology. <laughs> yeah. And several people out there, there's definitely a Kickstarter for the uh, uh, gloved cube operator. <laughs> uh, but it hasn't taken off for some reason. Anyway, he, he rattles off a bunch of techno babble, like, oh, hand me these kinds of router. Hand me that block uh, iPhones. Okay. Yeah. So many coincidences. Well, just yeah, right, 1995. So maybe that's like a good like talk about that when when technology fails to truly predict what it's like the future. Like well, usually, it's when they try to get so specific. Yeah, yeah. Like he's he's getting so specific about what the interface is going to look like, and it's just laughable when you watch it now because you're like, that's just nobody's doing that, and that's like yeah. community made fun of it too. Or, yeah, you know, totally. Made it yeah, because now it. it's 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 hilarious to yeah. look back at those. Yeah. Uh, and it, Nobody wears Chrome anymore. Like people in that movie, the Apple, everything was oh. iridescent Chrome fabric. Yeah, his whole, his whole deck, like the how he gets into the internet, is very much like it's just what Gibson was writing in Neuromancer in the eighties. Right. Um, not right. updated much for the nineties. Um, but you know, otherwise, you know, it's not. We didn't end up using like goofy gloves and VR stuff, but not for lack of trying. Like, right? Um, yeah, I guess the yeah. VR games are the thing that's really popping off now. But yeah, or Jack is still there's yeah, but they're not like accessible the way. That, yeah, they're like... still they're still expensive. I mean, I guess it's coming down, but it's still it's still very expensive, and it's still nowhere like huge amounts of research and uh, has been poured into it and it's a long way from actually becoming yeah uh, right they're not ubiquitous viable yeah ubiquitous consumer yeah right i mean if you buy an oculus and a connect you can pretend to be johnny mnemonic right now (laughs) Um, there must be a johnny mnemonic game right manipulating there there was the matrix rpg so there must be a johnny mnemonic one i feel like though you have to be in the know right like you have to like you have to like you have to be you really can, into it. Yeah, you have right. to be into it. Yeah. Well, like Johnny Mnemonic is a professional. Like he's in the know. This is what he does. Like all the characters in, uh, like early cyberpunk stories are like, you know, hip, edgy professionals and whatever techno nonsense they do. Um, right, that's true. Well, I Ice T in this in Johnny Mnemonic was what a techno anarchist, right? Yeah, he had the anarchy symbol on his forehead. Why are they called low tech? Yeah, that's honestly something I didn't understand because they seemed very high tech to me. Yeah, he was (laughs) plugged in for a global pirate broadcasting system. (laughs) But they also live on a bridge, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They drive Volkswagens on intruders. Yeah, burning burning cars (laughs) on people. Yeah. Um, This might be a good time. He gives a great performance. Yeah. I see does. (laughs) He does. He does. Henry Rollins also. Lots of yelling. Oh, man. Dr. Rollins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I mean, John Monick was definitely considered a failure at the time. William Gibson never wrote another screenplay. 
Oh. Uh, nobody has tried to make like a neuromancer film or anything like that, um, which is sort of a shame because I mean, everyone I know who's seen Johnny Mnemonic loves it. It's um, so good. <laughs> Easily one of the best films of 1995, yeah. in retrospect. <laughs> uh, incredible cast. Um, uh, Gibson did write two episodes of The X-Files, which I only know because that's my favorite show, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and one of them is good, and about like a global surveillance system. And the other one is terrible. <laughs> and it's called First Person Shooters. And it's, about, it's about a virtual reality game where people get oh, stuck God. inside it and the virtual reality AI starts killing, <laughs> killing people. Uh, which isn't the worst premise, but it's it's so terrible. But it is pretty funny to see Mulder and Scully in all their uh, v- virtual reality gear. Mulder's wearing, you know, a leather vest and nothing else. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, aesthetically, about- it's hilariously bad. But <laughs> the other I'm going to use this, this moment to talk about aesthetically hilariously bad things and reference oh, yeah. the apple which is another film that we forced ourselves to watch for, <laughs> or have seen previously um synopsis in 1994 a young couple enters the world of the music industry and sub- subsequently the world of drugs that's it <laughs> that's all i got there's way that's, more to the film <laughs> the, the movie was made in 1980 Ni- made in 1980 set in 1994 and just in case nobody is familiar with canon films um, <laughs> or the era of canon films when it was bought by Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. Um, Thank you for pronouncing those. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> Golan Globus. All right. Um, but they're two Israeli cousins and they bought a failing studio and they decided to make their business model of buying bottom barrel scripts and putting them into production. So, you know, you've probably seen or heard of their movies, Death Wish, a lot of Chuck Norris stuff. Uh, yeah, Delta Force. Delta um, Force. I, uh, Breaking, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, but, a lot of Sylvester Stallone films, um, a live action musical adaptation of Puss in Boots, where Christopher Walken <laughs> plays Puss. Yep. Um, just well, incredible, incredible output throughout the 80s and 90s. And but one of the most interesting thing about the Apple is that it was it was Menachem Golan's passion project. He, he both wrote and directed it. So he sat down and he wrote this original screenplay. In one go? Because it definitely felt like he was had to go to a dinner at the end of the screenplay. He's like, oh, and the, I got to get out of this somehow. And the description of the production process is just incredible. Like They filmed it. It, it was made in 1980. They filmed it mostly in West Berlin. And... Yeah. Israelis Appar- love Berlin. <laughs> Apparently, Menachem Golan was like flying back and forth between Berlin and London, like daily or weekly, just bringing back suitcases full of suitcases full of cash to like, continue <laughs> the production. <laughs> and they made this like a giant. There's this giant scene with like dinosaurs and stuff that. Was that was hugely, not in the... Yeah, it was hugely expensive <laughs> and outrageously ambitious and did not make it into the final cut of the film. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I thought, I mean, the film is 
is both hard to describe and easy to describe <laughs> at the same time. But one of the things that I wanted to include this in our Tales of the Future Now Past is because, you know, it was written in 1980 and he's predicting what 1994 is going to be like. And it is, it is a freak show. <laughs> it's such a it's weird... A, it's real fashion oriented. Like the whole, the whole premise <laughs> is that a rock group has been engineered to... Uh, uh, essentially become a cult like people love it so much that they wear its symbols everywhere and then uh the government adopts it so that the police now enforce you must listen to this uh music you must uh you must become bim bim is the name of the band bim, yeah. all is bim it's the name of the band and the song and like the record label I think it's the and, record label and the yeah. ideology yeah yeah um, and it's a man it's also the guy is bim Right. No, no, he's no, Mr. He Boogaloo. Yeah. Oh, um, you're right. <laughs> not Boogaloo, Boogaloo, Boogaloo. Um, and it's like a fat. They're fascists. But what's funny about it is that like the fascist, like the they're they're no good, right? They're like yeah. they're supposed to be bad. But like I, all the fun stuff about rock music uh, in the 1970s and 80s, like is well, is bad, right? Like <laughs> they're like a. Uh, Anything that's kind of queer is bad. Like all, like homosexuality is viewed as bad. I mean, in yeah, this I mean, film, they're, yeah, they're sort of fascistic in that, like, the police will stop you and like punish you if you don't have a BIM sticker, which is a triangle. But, yeah, which, <laughs> which is, is a, a fascist symbol. <laughs> um, but also, like, when they enforce, like, they enforce like a BIM sessions where everyone stops <laughs> and dances, to, like, for everyone to stay healthy. Yeah. So, like, there's a scene where firefighters in the middle of trying to stop a fire. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was my biggest laugh for the movie. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know. I mean, they, that, that's not what the firefighters should be doing. But the society <laughs> actually doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't. Uh, for, like, a horrible pop dictatorship. But, the, the I mean, the other thing is that Mr. Boogalow is literally Satan. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> which is sort of slowly revealed over the course of the film. Yeah, and the before, two main characters. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, not before at the end, it's revealed. Well, yeah, it's revealed <laughs> that the entire thing has been like yeah. a clumsy biblical um, allegory. Allegory. Yeah, I mean, the two main characters are are Adam and Eve, essentially. Yeah, you know, Alpha she, and Bibi. Who, yeah. I mean, they sound like they're like Israel's 1978 <laughs> submission to the Eurovision contest. <laughs> I mean, Bibi all... is an Israeli name, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, but, I mean, the film begins, the first scene is at World Vision, which is just like yeah. Eurovision for the entire world. Yeah. And it, it's maybe one of the best scenes in cinema <laughs> it's, history. It's really good. It's, the film begins, incredible costumes. And they're just sub already singing about BIM. And you don't know what BIM is. Yeah, it's like, am I and, hearing this right? And then the entire film, you never really understand what BIM is. But other than everything. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the I mean, there are oh, like... God, God makes a cameo at the end, right? Yep, Mr. Tops. Yeah. <laughs> In a fancy car. Oh, yeah. And everyone drives off. The uh, best part about it is, oh, go ahead, Moses. Oh, I, yeah, I was trying to try to relate it to what did it get rights? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are cult-like, you know, rock followings, and there have been for a long time. But they certainly got. 
I don't know. I'm thinking of like K-pop bands, right? You have mm-hmm. people who are obsessed with every aspect of them. I mean, and boy bands also in the nineties, it's a little closer right. to 1994. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. Apple is sort of like what it would be like if one of the main Korean pop production studios just ran um, the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a good take. <laughs> um, I, hope, I hope it is. <laughs> I think so. I, I like it. Well, I would recommend it just for sheer insanity as a film to watch. Did you, Ted, did you, did it inspire you for any music for this show? For the Apple, I picked um, obviously music from 1980 when it was made. Uh, I picked like particularly like German synth pop, Mm. post-punk stuff uh, because it's filmed in West Berlin. Uh, Also, Telex's Eurovision, um, <laughs> which was the Belgian entry for Eurovision in 1980, the year the <laughs> Apple was made. And it's like a very deadpan kind of pop song about Eurovision. Uh, it's <laughs> my favorite Eurovision entry of all time by far. Uh, so awesome. I'd like to play that. Uh, Devo's Freedom of Choice, um, which is kind of about, you know, uh, consumerist consumer society uh which the apple is sort of about well yeah also a lot of the costumes in apple are pretty devo-ish ziggurat hats and stuff there's Um, something so funny about the fact that they didn't even like bother to change the clothing of the 1980s to future (laughs) 1994 i'm like barely barely yeah yeah uh, man, the instruments in that film are incredible. Like the giant, like oh, transparent so... crystal balalaikas. Yeah, yeah like, a, a big like sheet of lucite with two keyboards pasted yeah. <laughs> onto it. Hexagonal drums. Like, I'm really sorry that the Apple didn't predict the future in that sense. <laughs> like, that should have become a thing. Um, um, and then I picked some things from 1994, the, mo- the year that the Apple is set in. Um, so 94? 94. A mixture of um, you know, electronic stuff that was sounded futuristically <laughs> then. And uh, Beck Satan gave me a taco, which <laughs> I haven't listened to in a long time, but it's kind of the plot of the Apple. <laughs> yeah. I, wow. I don't think I've listened to that song since high school, but I remember it v- pretty vividly. Yeah. It so. turns out it was written about the Apple. No, really? Uh, no, I, I have no reason to think that, but um, I believe it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Through canvas curtains, blue and yellow, shades of rose, listening to sad sounds of planes, Hey there, Gall here again. I just wanted to uh, let you know that you can also find the show with its music hopefully up on Mixcloud uh, soon enough. That is a matter of someone with greater technical knowledge than me uh, putting that up there. And if you are interested in the songs that were played during the original show, 
if you check out the podcast notes for this episode, you should find a playlist um, with all the curated music for this week's theme. Do we have any compelling last thoughts about um, this theme in general? <laughs> they better be compelling thoughts. <laughs> well, so, uh, since we did bring up Johnny Mnemonic, I was mm. going to say one thing about that. Since we're talking about like predictions of the present, uh, past predictions of are now, uh, like the one of the main plots in Johnny Mnemonic is about a global ac- epidemic. Um, right. It's caused by like overexposure to um, basically like computers. Yeah. Uh, get the black shakes. Yeah. Um, Was so, it, is it like implants? If because you get like computer implants or just in general over? Henry Rollins seemed to just gesture to every monitor. <laughs> okay. And said, yeah. It's all this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting, like. And he used the doctor, so. Yeah, he's very much a doctor uh, in that film. So it's an it's a fairly. I mean, people were probably starting to worry about like video game addiction or what have you in the mid nineties, but it's pretty early for that. And it kind of, I don't know if people had started believing they were like allergic to Wi Fi by nineteen ninety five. But if they hadn't, then it sort of predicted that. Right. But as a real thing. Um, I would like to point out. Oh, go ahead, Ted. I'm I'm just saying, like, Johnny Mnemonic's 2020 is sort of our 2020. If uh, (laughs) COVID-19 was caused by being on Twitter too much. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) One thing I would like to point out, the similarities between that film and the Apple is the the, um, uh, Dolph Lundgren's character of, um, of, like, a... Oh, the weird Jesus guy. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, the like assassin a... who is a cyber Jesus. Yeah, yeah a contract killer who is either disguised as like a crazed street preacher who thinks he's Jesus, or he's just a contract killer who is a crazed street person who thinks he's Jesus. I mean, I got the impression he was the the latter, right? Like that he yeah. really. Or maybe I, you've seen the film way more than it's a text, it's a so. rich text. <laughs> yeah, you saw it more recently. But, yeah, but no, I mean that that underlines how in like William Gibson's worlds, everyone is constantly like hustling. Right. That, like even even the street preacher guy is a contract right. killer. <laughs> right. um, like yeah, everyone. Which and again, prediction wise. Uh, kind of predict like cyberpunk definitely predicted or presaged the gig economy mm. in a lot of ways because right. very much everyone is constantly gigging all of the time <laughs> giggity 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 that's, that's cyberpunk for you oh. <laughs> we're that out in post <laughs> we'll see <laughs> yeah i mean i think like in a sense speculative fiction is just that right like this theme that we have is like is specifically focused on works that are set in our our present or our near present or our near past right but like the idea of speculative fiction and octavia butler talks about it is 
is that it's it's people speculating right so like you can make an argument that all 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 sci-fi is um predictions about the future whether they come true or not right mm -hmm. that yeah. was my okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was my profound i was trying to wrap this up <laughs> oh yeah the other I, we should tell our listeners this show doesn't have any buttons we don't button anything we just clip <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my boy Henri Lefebvre um, <laughs> talks about how the real is composed of both the actual and the possible. Um, so, mm -hmm. like, naturalism, like, naive naturalism is just about the actual, but the real is really the things that actually are the case now, but also, like, the potentialities um, that are, like, surround it or its context. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, like, yeah, speculative fiction is kind of realism that focuses on the possible, right? The possible side of the real, right. um, mm -hmm. but obviously, yeah. So, and as we've been talking about, though, that always reflects the particular context the creator is writing or filming from. Um, so it's always the possible of a very specific like historically contingent real blah 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 <laughs> that's good thank you blah 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 is how wow. we're gonna end our <laughs> okay that is a button but i do what i do but uh, what i, I do want to say is this is you know being broadcast on kcsb right now but we're we are i'm in in philadelphia and we've got people in california and seattle and so if you for some reason want to get a hold of us I don't know why. Oh yeah. <laughs> Any complaints you have? Yes. All of them. You can direct them to what was it, Ted? The it's email. The, the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. Right. It's the whole phrase. The whole phrase. Well, the whole phrase is some violence. Is oh, it's not. It's not the whole quotation. <laughs> yeah. It's just the whole phrase. The last refuge of the incompetent. Right. No um, spaces. No spaces. How dare you space out those words? And um, yeah, uh, I mean, oh, I feel like we should give a, a heads up for what our topic next week is for our, our, any listeners in case you want to prepare and yeah, or in case you want to deliberately <laughs> avoid preparing. <laughs> you do it, Moses. Everything by Ursula. <laughs> hey, Levin. Well, I was thinking, you know, we'll focus on the big things, but I, I've, I think I've read, read no everything that words. she's written. I, I think personally, if there's something I haven't read of hers, please tell me. So get in my brain and figure out the things I haven't read of Earth. I, I haven't read the uh, Earth Sea, not Earth, <gasps> unrelated to Earth Seed. I would Earth fantasy like young adult one. I mean, this Earth is something we we don't need to talk about now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> All right. But, Did you read those? Yeah, no. I read right. them. I read them in like middle school, so I don't remember them. But... I read them fairly recently. I'm not a big fan of fantasy. I don't usually like get into it. Um, but when I was living in Hawaii, I didn't have. Um, internet i got into them and they're really good <laughs> all right yeah, that's I mean, a little sneak peek <laughs> yeah you should. Sneak peek. something to read on an island definitely <laughs> yeah. Island books. yeah but yeah we don't i mean this is a sci-fi show so we don't need to talk about <laughs> earth uh, earth city <laughs> fantasy garbage <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so thank you for listening guys and hopefully you enjoyed it <laughs>
Okay, <laughs> we're, we're, done. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> we're, we're figuring out the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, should we call our immediately call all the listeners fans and say that they're all incompetiers? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? What's it going, fellow incompetiers? <laughs> well, we can't just, because of our We can't just come out and call them incompetents. Yeah. <laughs> we can. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks,